Okay, welcome everyone to this session on women in publishing. My name is Andrea Jan, and I serve on the Publications Committee of the American Academy of Religion, as well, uh, and I'm also the editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. So um, we're here today to talk about women in publishing, and we've asked a few different uh, women who have served in uh, as, as authors and uh, in some cases as editors um, to talk about some of the unique challenges that women might face with regard to publishing. Um, is this too loud? Should I move it back a little bit? It's like echoing a little bit, isn't it? I'm kind of loud as it is. Okay. There we go. Okay. So I want to start with a funny anecdote. Um, when I was, uh, it was 2014, and I had submitted an, uh, an article submission to the JAR. This was obviously well before I was editor. And I was in the delivery room, literally, in labor with my first child. And it had been a year since I had submitted that uh, manuscript, and I had not heard from the editor. And I was about to have my first baby. So I literally emailed the editor of the jar from the delivery room to find out the status of my submission because I was like, I gotta get published. I'm about to have this baby that's gonna like feed on me for who knows how long. And, uh, and that was, you know, so that, that's just a funny story. Luckily he was, he was an extraordinary editor and he got back to me very quickly and luckily we did see that uh, manuscript to, to publication eventually. But um, I tell that story just because it's, it's, it's kind of fun and funny, but um, at my expense. But it also captures you know, the real, real palpable challenges that women sometimes face, not just because some of us are mothers, because not all of us are mothers, but because we're women. And women have all sorts of different uh, unique situations that um, our male counterparts and uh, other counterparts don't necessarily um, face in uh, the world of publishing. And so we're here to talk about just some of those uh, struggles um, from uh, taking maternity leaves to dealing with just being underrepresented in the academy um, and having fewer options when it comes to mentoring. Um, you know, all, a whole wide range of challenges we may or may not face as women when it comes to uh, publishing. And I think we've invited a broad range of uh, excellent scholars here to address some of the questions you might have. So we'll save plenty of room for those, uh, for, for those um, at the end um, and hopefully have a fruitful discussion. Um, so we're gonna start with Zane Kassam. Uh, Zane is professor and chair of religious studies at Pomona College. She, she sits on the editorial boards of several journals, including the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion, and is an associate editor for the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. She regularly reviews book manuscripts for a number of book publishers and has herself edited two volumes of essays, served on the editorial board of the Encyclopedia of Indian Religions, and has published an introductory volume on Islam. So we'll start with, with Zane. Each one of our panelists will have 10 to 15 minutes um, to address uh, some issues that they deem particularly important. And then we'll um, open it up at the end for Q&A. So Zane, do you have a microphone I close enough? I you good? Can you all hear me? Okay. 
Okay, let me know if I'm not projecting my voice uh, sufficiently. So welcome to all of you, and I hope what I have to say is not too elementary. Uh, you're all seasoned people, but uh, I want to pick up on uh, references that Andrea made to uh, thinking about impediments to women publishing. And uh, as you probably have experienced, one of the first impediments actually is where you are in your life stage. So for instance, uh, you know, quite often as we're entering the academy um, with uh, respect to a teaching career, uh, we find that that's also the time when we're either, you know, uh, having uh, uh, children or uh, elder care becomes an issue and we have to attend to that. So in other words, you know, there are care and nurturing responsibilities that we have at the same time as we're building our careers. That can make it very difficult, especially if you're teaching courses, you're prepping for courses, you're creating new courses, you're also being set on all kinds of committees at uh, your institutions. Um, there are maybe uh, uh, committees that you belong to in your communities that you're also uh, participating in. If you're a mom, then you probably own a mommy van and you're driving your kids to all kinds of after-school activities. So maintaining that work-life balance can be really, really difficult where there's enough to get done in a day, in a week, in a month, um, which leaves then very little time for actually doing research and writing. Um, then the other thing is career demands. You know, we do know, we, we do know that women in the academy do tend to carry a larger share of committee work, but also what is sometimes not on a formal, not formalized as committee work, which is the advising that we do for students, for other faculty, for mentoring, um, where um, you know students will come and talk to you because you're female and they're discussed, they wanna talk through their issues, say with sexuality or their issues with uh, um, you know, other professors because they feel that you're somebody that they can open up to. Um, there's uh, also the thing that as, uh, institution, as our institutions seek to diversify more, they want more female voices on their committees and if you especially happen to be a person of color who's also um, presents as female then you're likely to be asked to serve on those committees as well. So anything with the word diversity is first gonna be women and then it's gonna be persons of color. So that becomes again another heavier load. Um, there's uh, also the fact that if you're entering the academy, then the pressure to create a slate of courses so that in the first few years you're inventing and reinventing your courses so that you have what is known as a stable of courses that then you would then offer on a cycle. And I remember when I first entered Pomona College, one of uh, the more seasoned faculty women said to me that it'll, it's, uh, it takes about 10 years to perfect a course so that you can then teach it without having to think about it. And it's true because did I not in reinvent the same course over and over again until I felt somewhat satisfied but never fully satisfied with it. So that's one, that's a second kind of impediment too spending dedicated time on research and uh, writing and uh, then looking for publishers who want to publish your, your work. The third issue that uh, some of you may have experienced, I know that I certainly did and continue to in some ways, is the imposter syndrome where you know somehow uh, we're 
socialized that the work is never quite good enough or excellent enough. The bar is always like just out of reach. And uh, then there's on the other side, you know, the desire for perfection that you want what you've written to be so good that no journal dare turn it down. And both of those are traps in a way because, uh, you know, the imposter syndrome actually doesn't go away ever except when somebody accepts your work and then it just goes away temporarily. So, you know, it's like the fake it till you make it uh, that has to come into effect. But the desire for perfection, I think that that's something that we need to understand that all academic work is constantly work in progress anyway. And things that you could have written 10 years ago that you thought were really good then, 10 years later when you look at it again, you think, you know, the field's moved, there's better language now, there's more theoretical framing, that, different theoretical framing that has occurred. Um, the political situation has changed, the social situation has changed, so um, those are the things to kind of also bear in mind that the desire for perfection and the imposter syndrome can also work in their own in ineluctable ways to kind of stop us from publishing what we have in fact written and could be ready to be sent out. So what I want to just mention very briefly um, in the 15 minutes uh, allotted to me is what are some of the strategies that we can draw upon to address some or all of these questions. So, you know, they do say that if you want something done, ask a busy person, and how does a busy person organize their time? They simply just calendar in what they want to give their time to. So it's kind of, uh, you know, um, sort of counterintuitive because spending time on anything that enriches self is sometimes considered to be selfish and, you know, generous souls that we are, we don't want to take the time to go get that massage or go for that walk in the woods or to actually spend an hour thinking, reading, writing, outlining, coming up with ideas, brainstorming, because there's this committee work that has to be attended to, that student's paper that has to be read, um, this class that has to be uh, you know, organized, the field trip uh, uh, put underway. But calendaring in regular writing time whether it's every Friday morning or whether it's every Sunday afternoon or whether it's, uh, you know, one hour a day in the morning. I've asked people, several uh, faculty, men and women, and everything in between, you know, how they get so much writing done. And I've heard the most interesting things. Well, I set the clock at 5 a.m. and I go for a run and then I come back and I make a cup of tea and then I write for an hour and then my day begins. And others would say, well, I have a block of time Friday morning, so that's my time to do it. Others say, well, the kids go to bed and the kitchen floor is swept and it's all done by 10 p.m., so that's when I sit down and I write, you know. So figure out a place and put it on your calendar as you're writing regular writing check-in time. And uh, one thing that I personally found really helpful is that uh, um, a group of women got together and established a writing group. And we were all different fields, but within the humanities, uh, broadly written, one in English, one in anthropology, one in uh, um, uh, medical humanities, and myself in religious studies. And so we would meet regularly once a month uh, at someone's place um, and uh, essentially workshop work in progress that one of us was writing. And we set up a schedule as to, okay, it's Zane's term in March. 
So I knew that I had till March, say we were now in November, that I had till March to get something ready for that group. So that sense of accountability to the group, and then of course they read the work, gave me phenomenally, phenomenally good feedback, not just on grammatical issues, but also the logic of the essay, what was missing for a general reader, general but educated reader. Um, and those uh, monthly meetings really, really did help me, despite the fact that I was a single mom, I was on every committee imaginable, I was teaching courses, uh, there were national committees, um, finding time to write was difficult, but that kind of accountability helped me not only get tenure, but then get to the rank of full professor. Both of which, as you all know, do depend on showing a steady stream of publishing something. Um, in your institution can sometimes support you as well. We, uh, um, when I was coordinating or chairing gender and women's studies, we brought the op-ed project in to do a workshop with gender and women's studies faculty, precisely because the op-ed project was really concerned about the fact that very few op-eds are actually written by women when you take a survey of all the major newspapers in this country. And they were saying, well, why is that the case? Because women, each one of us has expertise in our particular fields. So how do you mobilize that expertise to speak to a current issue where you need to, all you need to do is write a 750 word op-ed. But what remained with all the women is that they needed to hear that we are actually, each one of us, experts in something, right? Um, which in a sense addresses that imposter syndrome issue, but also addresses the drive for perfection, that sometimes, you know, uh, it's not a question of being perfect as much as it's a question of do you have something that can make an intervention at a particular point, at a particular historical moment? And if so, then write about it, right? And then maybe a few days, a few months later, somebody else will come up and have add to it, you know, or contest it. But that's okay, that's part of an ongoing conversation and we don't need to feel threatened or diminished <coughs> by it, okay? Um, there is also the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. You may have all heard of it, NCFDD. And uh, uh, a bunch of us uh, convinced our college that the money was well spent and the college went for it and so they sent a bunch of us off on their workshops. Now, I think that they work primarily with you know, development and diversity, so it meant that it was women of color that they sent, but still um, their workshops are really helpful in doing some of the things that uh, I've already talked about, you know, calendaring time in, setting up small steps, uh, devising a larger project but breaking it down into doable small pieces. So there's some good lessons to be learned from them and you could just look them up because their strategies are useful and a lot of their material is public and can be accessed whether your institution pays for you to go there or not or, you know, participate in a workshop or not. Um, another thing is that, you know, one's dissertation is actually can be much more easily turned into publishable material, whether you take articles out of it or you publish the whole thing as a book. And so my dissertation has never been published simply because once I was hired at Pomona College, which is a very high intensity place, there just never was time to go back and revise it and I thought it, thought it needed revision. Now I'm at the stage where I can counsel people to say that, you know, make just 
very few changes on your dissertation, but send it out to publishers because they will send it to reviewers who will then come back to you with feedback about this is what needs to be done to make it publishable. So that when you're revising it, you have nuts and bolts things upon which to, that you need to focus on in order to revise it to the point where a publisher will take it and publish it, right? So that's one thing that you know, one shouldn't uh, forget about doing. Um, another strategy that I found really, really helpful is that somebody said to me, and this is when I was asking faculty, well, how do you manage to write so many books? I mean, you're on your fourth book now, and how do you do it? Because I'm busy, you're busy, and yet somehow you do it and I don't. And this person shared with me the idea, actually several people shared, but it was similar ideas that I'm distilling for you here, is that work out <coughs> your next book. Work out the architecture of your next book. Say it's got going to have six chapters. Then present at conferences one of those chapters. Because conferences are wonderful places at which to get feedback on how to really address some of the issues that are pertinent to that topic that you did not address as well as you might have. Or you know, questions are asked that make you think, oh, I should definitely you know, have a section on that. And so, you know, if you present at a regional as well as at a national conference before you know it in two or three years, which is the time it takes to write a book, at least minimally, I think, um, you know, you've gotten feedback and you're able to actually then get a book out because you've been working on it in order to meet the deadlines for the conference presentation, right? What another person does is that they test each chapter out in one of their classes. So students will discuss the chapter, they will get feedback on it, the deeper level of engagement, so that's another strategy that you could uh, have used. And then also remember that sometimes you can float about 10% of the material of your next book in journal articles. Most publishers will allow at least 10% to be published <coughs> elsewhere, so it's not 100% new material. So that's a way of getting a publication out while the book is being written, right? Especially because you know the tenure clock, the promotion clock, doesn't necessarily wait for the book to be done before the clock kicks in, kind of thing. So I'll stop there, and if there's more conversation, we can certainly have it. Thank perfect. you. Perfect. <clears throat> that was perfect timing. Thank you. Same. All right. So next up, we have Elaine Maisner. Executive Editor at UNC Press, and she has worked in scholarly book publishing since 1985, including editorial positions at Yale University Press and the University of Tokyo Press. And at UNC Press since 1992, she acquires books in the areas of religious studies, Latin American and Caribbean studies, and regional and general trade. Her article, Getting Published by University Press, which might be very useful for all of us, is available in Perspectives, the magazine of the American Historical Association. Elaine originated and sponsors two UNC press series in religious studies, Islamic Civilization and Muslim Networks, and Where Religion Lives. She served on the membership committee, diversity committee, and currently on the advocacy committee of the Association of University Presses, and since 1997 has been a member of the UNC Duke Consortium in Latin American Studies editorial committee for the Latin America and Translation series. Uh, so I will hand it now over to Elaine. Thank you so much. And here you go. All right. Um, 
I want to thank you for being here and also to say that I really appreciated um, Zane's wonderful ideas about how to be efficient in terms of publishing your manuscript because as an editor I'm always like, when do you think you can get this done? When do you think you can get this done? And I try to be very supportive in that way because I find that it helps my authors to, um, to focus and to realize that there is a deadline. Of course, we will extend it if need be. But um, I, So I'm trying to present the, is there too much feedback? Yeah. Thanks. I'm trying to present, oh yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. Yeah. Is that okay? The editorial, uh, sort of the university press, whatever I can, help I can be from the university press point of view or academic press or any publisher, really, um, because I, um, I can see, and I've talked to a lot of people in preparation for this about things that are particular to women uh, with regard to being able to produce publications. I want to talk about it sort of from the angle of, of working with a press. So it's, well, the first important thing to know is that university press publishing uh, is an ecosystem. You know, it's made up of networks. And um, all of these things bear on your connections and with other people. So for example, and as, as Zane put it, building your career is, is really encompassed in this ecosystem. There are um, referrals to editors that people make, and that's very good. It doesn't mean your book's going to get published, even sometimes when it's referred by some of the most august people in the world, and that's because it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with the work, but the, each publisher has its own uh, list-building needs, you know, at any given time. So I, um, it's, it's, so I'll come to another point related to that, but. That's, that's a place to start. If, you're, if you had advisors who have relationships with publishers, it's fine for them. In fact, editors like to hear from uh, their, their friends and people they respect saying, oh, I have this really wonderful project, you know, so would you like to know more about it, you know? And, and we'll say yes. Again, it doesn't mean we'll necessarily accept it, but we definitely want to know about it. On the other hand, we don't need to hear about it from anyone either. So we want to have direct submissions from you, uh, whether or not anyone is telling us about it separately. Um, you want, I guess you want a supportive editor, you know, someone who's responsive, unlike <laughs> that person uh, originally. Don't stop bugging people for response, okay? It is fine, and if this person is not professional enough to give you a response in time, um, I say that being more and more swamped and getting later and later with answering people, but you have every right to ask. Um, the other, another part of this network or ecosystem are reviewers, reviewer pools. Um, we want to know when, when the manuscript is ready to go out, and I, I do try to develop my manuscripts or sometimes just a proposal in one chapter if I think I want to try for an, uh, get an advanced contract. I'll talk more about that, but there are many um, people who are, you know, supervising their own graduate students' dissertations. So I, I don't want to burden them. I do want to feel like the project is really well conceived and, and at least has a plan for revision in place. 
Um, I, I wouldn't want to send a raw dissertation out to somebody. Um, they would stop respecting probably, you know, what I do, I think, if I did that. Sometimes I'll send a kind of a cosmetically revised manuscript out, of, out with a plan for revision that the author has created, and I'll go over that plan with them, and that's also a possibility. Um, I think that the, you know, what I really want is for the author to have a vision for their book. I want you to feel like you know what you're saying. I want you to feel like you know what's new, and so what? Why does that matter? Okay? That doesn't mean you finished it or you're completed. I want you to really have a voice. I really want you to have a voice. And in a dissertation, it's going to become a book. It's no longer a dissertation. You're taking your place, you know, as, a, as an expert in the field. You probably know more about whatever topic you wrote your dissertation on than anybody else, actually. So I always try to get you to be very um, uh, assertive, uh, passionate in your voice. You're not overstepping the bounds of your evidence. Obviously, that would be a disaster. But you are trying to, you know, say, hey, I've really discovered something, and you should know about it. Um, and then there's also, later on, uh, with a promotion of the book, if it gets published. You, you need to be out there. You need to have contacts. We want to know about your contacts. That all goes into help publicizing your book. Um, one other thing in the network is grant applications, and if you get to the a more senior level, when you review other people's proposals or grant applications or uh, panels, you know, you have every right to say, this doesn't include a woman. This doesn't include a person of color. This doesn't include a non-binary gender person. You need to speak up. I feel like we're in a really gigantic moment of change, but it's not going to happen unless people persist and speak up very clearly. Of course, you can be polite, but you have to speak up. <coughs> now, once it, it goes, you know, it may be out of your hands at that point, but with everyone's voices being heard, it's going to make a change in the ecosystem. Um, I think that one thing that I see my, a lot of my authors doing is having really, you know, nice networks of friends around them, scholarly friends, the reading group that Zane mentioned is, is very good, but just having people out there supporting each other is, is good. So if you can cultivate that kind of thing. Um, you know, I know that intellectually there's, does somebody want to always feel like they're doing a woman's, you know, a woman's project? Um, what I mean is, do you need to identify as with a gender in order to be heard, you know? So I think that actually it can help. It doesn't mean that you're ignoring all the other multitudinous things that involve them being human. And you know, males are human too, and a lot of them are great. But you need to have some kind of support because from what I understand, women are, uh, take rejection, and many women may take rejection in a different way than men do. Some, my, some people I think are the most confident people have told me that if, if they get a rejection, they, they basically just take it so personally and they, it takes them a long time to bounce back whereas, and, and send it out. And that's one of the things you have to do in publishing because like I said, your book may not get accepted, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because no, you're, you're, you know, your number one press just doesn't have room to publish everything that they want to publish. So you have to keep send it out again, you know, have a good list of publishers, have, um, think about the,
people who are publishing at places <clears throat> where you'd like your book to be in conversation, you know, with the list. And I'm sure there are many really, really good publishers um, out there for your topic. Um, and that's another thing, though. You need to know what publishers' profiles are. You need to think about whether it's an appropriate press that will do right by your book and your topic. But coming back to um, trying to think about your, your, one of the most important things about getting published is your for, number one, the very first thing you do is to choose a topic. A lot will flow from that later down the line. So think about how, you know, as a dissertation, you have to focus on making a really concrete case, obviously. But think about how, especially in revisions, you can connect it to larger issues and show how your, your particular topic relates to bigger trends in the field, whether it's theoretical, historical, um, social, culturally, um, you know, methods and ethnography, forwarding the field of ethnography. Think about how you can make the case later on, frame your, your project in a bigger way and say, see, this is what this, my particular um, topic can contribute to some big questions. Um, I, I had, I just spoke with someone who told me that she was trying to choose, she's in Islamic studies on a topic and her advisor told her it was, she was interested, oh, and women's history, you know, and women's studies, extremely important. Kathy Breckis says, when you bring women into the, into the story of American religious history, it changes the history. So a lot of people I work with are really interested in women's studies, women's history. Do it, you know, do it if you want to. But you have to be strategic, too, because at least in some fields, it, it can be hard. Uh, it may be more male-led, male-driven. Um, one, or, or what profile do you want to use to step out with your very first project? I guess there's some strategy that you have to think about. So this uh, advisor told this woman, she, one of her projects had to do with women, <clears throat> and the other one did not. And he said, gee, I really think we should do the woman one later and do this other one. Because if you do the women one now, you're going to be identified always with women's issues, women's studies. And of course, that's insulting. But on the other hand, uh, in the field she was in, she felt like it was good advice and she took it and she was glad she did. And now she's going to the Women's Studies Project. I don't know, you have to be strategic. Of course, it depends on what your fundamental interests are. And the main thing is to think it through on that larger level and be engaged with it because this is a project you're going to be working on for a long time. And hopefully, you're going to have some passion for it. Um, so your choice of topic is key from the beginning. I think that when it, whatever project it is, you should bring gender into it in some way, even if it's to say, I'm not really addressing gender. Because people now, at least in, at our press, we're always thinking about gender, we're always thinking about race. We need to think, we need to know that you haven't just ignored it or mistakenly um, you know, set it aside. So it's, it's, a, it's a crucial thing. And um, another thing about writing um, is to think about your language, you know, inclusive language. Uh, I saw a question come up on Twitter recently. It said, how should I treat women's names uh, whose, with their status through time and their life story, their name has changed? Should I just pick one name and stick with it? And somebody else said, and I agree with this 100%. No, of course not. 
talk about, be very transparent, you know, say this woman was born, blah, blah, and then when she gets married, say her name changed to this. And if you want, you can just say that's how I'm going to refer to her by her married name from now on. Then when she got divorced, you know. <laughs> so be very open about that and show how women's lives are reflected, you know, in your women. Show reflect women's lives in your work. Um, I think that passion and persistence are really important. How you deal with rejection. Um, you, you have to, you know, this idea of the imposters is an interesting way to think about it. Women who are helping you or a support group of some type, it doesn't have to be all women, but it could be, uh, to give you confidence. If you get rejected, don't stop. Keep going, okay? Yes, I think it's a great idea to get advice on your work at an early stage. I think if you can develop um, a relationship with an editor who thinks that it has potential for their list, you could talk with them a lot about it. Um, they will have really good ideas. You should also read papers, give talks, um, ask friends to read something that you've written. Those are very good ideas to do in advance. And um, you know, don't be afraid to tear your dissertation apart and turn it into a book. And then we're having a panel on how to get published tomorrow. So no, Monday. So we'll have more ideas about what you need to do for that if you want to go to that. I think it's Monday afternoon. Um, I just wanted to end with, um, oh, I said I promised some hard data, hard, hard, hard data, and I did a count of at UNC Press uh, since let's see, since. 19, uh, 2010, so nine years ago, in my religious studies list, counting people by gender so far as I know them, which is mainly all identified as women or men, um, we've 48% of our religious studies list has been women, okay, published authors. And since uh, spring of 17, 50% women. So I think that's really good compared to apparently, I don't know what the JAR um, statistics are, but I'd be really interested about that. And I, do, I don't, and I personally, I'm not going out, uh, I really want to publish women, that's true, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm competing with a lot of different editors for the best work, so I try to think about it like, I'm just looking for the best work, okay? I don't care who wrote it. <laughs> um, but maybe there's, maybe there's a combination of being aware of wanting to publish women and looking for the best work and then finding a way to, to bring that together. And I hope you, know, you find a publisher who also respects that. Um, I think respect is really important. Um, you, you know, hopefully you'll find respect within, I've heard tales about publishers who may not, especially if it's a denominational publisher in certain areas they may not relate to women the same way they do to men because they're male-led fields. That's something to think about. But let me end with a little story that will illustrate this idea of making your voice heard and persistence. Um, I have a very good friend named Mary who's a bird watcher. And she's out in the field, all, in the field, not, not our kind of field, but she's out <laughs> in the field all the time. And she told me that a couple of months ago she was um, standing, I think, let's see, on the edge of a, a path there was a field, and there was a, a woman with two little kids who were standing on the path, but it, just like a couple of feet in front of the kids was a copperhead snake, mm. which are very dangerous. And she said, um, kids, 
I think you should move back. There's a copperhead right there. And she said, ma'am, your kids are, there's a copperhead there. And, and they didn't respond. Then a man came along and he said, probably a deeper voice, um, there's a copperhead right there. And, and she said, oh, kids, get away, you know. And, and she said, oh, thank you for telling me <laughs> to the man. And Mary knew she had heard them. She had heard the voice. So I'm sure the woman wasn't doing it, wasn't ignoring her um, because she would have wanted to you know, protect her kids. But there's, I don't know, you know, that's what happened. And so if that happens, I, I said, did you say something to the woman? Like, oh, I just told you that a minute ago. <laughs> she said, no, no, it's, help, it's hopeless. Um, but I don't think, I think you should go the extra step. If you're not being heard, just say, hello, by the way, I just did this, or I just submitted this, or, you know, be heard, don't stop. And, and um, that's my story. <laughs> that's great, thank you, Elaine. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to reach over, excuse me. Yeah. I just want to make sure everybody can hear me. Um, so next up is Lisa Sedaris. Lisa is Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University with interests in environmental issues at, at the intersection of science and religion. Her most recent book is Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World with the University of California Press, uh, which was published in 2017. She serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, the Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, Trumpeter, Journal of Ecosophy, I just want to make sure I'm saying that right, and uh, Religions, and The Imminent Frame. So thank you, Lisa, for being here, and I'll pass it off to you. Uh, how's the sound? Is this on, actually? Okay, I can't really tell. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. I'm not really sure why I'm here. <laughs> it's that imposter syndrome, I guess. Um, thanks for putting this together. Um, you've already heard a lot of really great advice. Um, I wish I had gotten some of this advice when I was, when I was younger. Um, and so I'll, I'm reading my, my comments off my computer in part because I have sort of rewritten them so much trying to figure out what I have to say that's sort of useful. So sorry about having the screen in front of me. But I've ended up with some sort of anecdotal things, which um, are not maybe funny anecdotes exactly, um, but maybe more like cautionary tales. So, um, In politics, the presence of multiple women in a given race, say the presidential race, does not necessarily mean the playing field has been leveled. The same is true in academia. While academics is now considered to be a co-ed sport, there are often tacit expectations that women conduct themselves differently in terms of things like promoting or not promoting themselves, for example. Um, and there's often a general unspoken assumption that women will or should sacrifice more time for service, as we've heard, um, or more collaborative sort of endeavors. Add to these professional expectations the fact that, as one recent headline in The Atlantic put it, quote, even breadwinning wives don't get equality at home. <laughs> Um, breadwinning wives is how they put it. And you've got a recipe for resentment and burnout and possibly professional failure. Fortunately, this headline doesn't apply to me, though I am the chief breadwinner in my family. But like all women in the academy, I've encountered some expectations that don't always seem to apply to my male counterparts. Um, it can take the form, for example, of pressure to participate in a job search when you're officially on sabbatical, which has happened to me. Um, or, you know, expectations that women 
consistently support one another where supporting each other means not critiquing their work. It's also happened to me. So I don't edit a journal or work in a press, so I don't have the data um, that you're hearing here. So what I have mostly are sort of uh, my impressions from 20 years on the job in a subfield, um, science and religion. Um, I guess you could also say environmental ethics, I think both of which are more male-dominated still, perhaps, than the field of religious studies as a whole, or at least that's my impression. So I want to focus my comments on two particular areas. Um, first is the inherited legacies of gender disparity, I think, in science and religion scholarship. And second, the sort of double standards that can lead to condemning the tone of women's scholarship. Um, so I think virtually any field or subfield that exists in close proximity to science um, still reflects the ongoing underrepresentation of women. Um, so here's a couple of reference points from science and religion. One of the longest running boys clubs in the Western world is the Gifford Lectures. Um, this remained an all-male event for nearly a century until 1973 when Hannah Arendt was the first to break into its ranks. And actually, um, Hannah Arendt suffered a heart attack while she was delivering. I mean, not while she was on stage, but while she was in Scotland in the midst of completing her Gifford lectures and um, ended up not completing them, which is an interesting story just in the sense of perhaps it was a bit of a curse for her, actually. Um, and even then, another decade passed before a second female Gifford lecturer appeared. So an another 10 years went by. That was Iris Murdoch, by the way. Um, and the situation's even more desperate with the Boyle Lectures, which is another prestigious science and religion affair since its inception in 1692. It's a good year for witch hunts, by the way. Um, <laughs> the real witch hunts, I mean. The Boyle Lectures have since 1692 featured a total of two female lecturers, um, and the first of those occurred in 2012. Of course, much the same could probably be said of many prestigious lectures or other lofty sort of honors, but conversations in science and religion retain a distinctly masculine vibe. In the past couple of years, as I've looked around some rather large seminar tables with invited scholars discussing, say, religion and astrobiology, or religion and the Anthropocene, I've been a little shocked to realize that I'm often the only woman or one of only two women in the room. So gender is not something that I often speak or write about um, professionally, um, and I don't approach my work necessarily in ways that are intentionally feminist, although that may be the outcome, the effect. But to get more personal for a moment, um, going through one's professional life not only as female, but as a woman who is under five feet tall, I think you can um, expect that most people will not take you seriously, at least not initially. So my general attitude towards issues of gender, at least just as they apply to me, but not in general, um, is much like my response to being four foot 10, which is something I just wish I didn't have to think about. But other people don't let you forget, even when you want to not think about it. So a sort of funny story, maybe funny, that um, my husband always sort of reminds me of was that I was at a reception where I said hello to a very tall, um, colleague that I hadn't seen for a long time and sort of looking down at me from this great height he said oh I didn't see you and then he said helpfully I mean literally I didn't see you <laughs> so for me the act of writing and publishing as opposed to speaking is something that feels pretty liberating 
because literally people can't see me. Rachel Carson, who's someone who's an important figure in my work, often remarked on her reader's inability to believe that a woman could have written so many best-selling books about science and the ocean. In one of my favorite quotes from her, she says, quote, people often seem to be surprised that a woman should have written a book about the sea. This is especially true, I find, of men. She goes on to say, and even then, even if they accept my sex, some people are further surprised to find that I am not a tall, oversized, Amazon-type female. <laughs> she says, I can offer no defense for not being what people expect. So it may be that in my own publications, I compensate for not being an Amazon-style Amazon woman by taking positions that are consistently critical and adopting a style that is one of sort of assertive dissent. While I wouldn't say that this writing persona is an alter ego, it is a somewhat exaggerated version of my true personality. So this brings me to the issue of tone. Tone policing hasn't really changed much since Rachel Carson, who was a scientist without a PhD or a Y chromosome, was chastised for her strident um, and emotional tone. A review of Carson's book, Silent Spring, authored by one William J. Darby, professor and department chair of biochemistry at Vanderbilt, infamously bears the title, Silence, Ms. Carson. <laughs> yeah. uh, Darby depicts Carson's writing style as overwrought and tiresome. He straightforwardly accuses her of padding her bibliography so as to appear authoritative. He mocks her concerns. It is doubtful, he writes, that many readers can bear to wade through the book's high-pitched sequences of anxieties. This book, the insufferable Darby concludes, should be ignored. Along with current debates about civility, tone policing has become a popular topic of discussion in the Me Too era. So as you probably know, tone policing occurs when one scholar thwarts another's arguments or opinions by reacting to the perceived mode of delivery uh, rather than the content or more than the content. It allows the detractor to establish um, typically his power in the conversation. It's a well-known fact that women of color are especially likely to encounter these pseudo-critiques in both their written work and their public presentations. And in general, what looks like passion, conviction, or courage coming from a male scholar may be dismissed as sheer hormonal display if the writer or speaker is female. A recent reviewer of my own latest book, a man a little bit older than myself, makes the following observation. Her work can be tiring to read. It's the tone. While she raises caveats and qualifications, the reader gets the sense that Sedaris is angry at these thinkers. She does not let up. Nag, nag, nag. <laughs> yeah. It was, in, it was in the trumpeter, in fact, that, on which I, for which I serve on the editorial board. <clears throat> I think this is the academic equivalent of being told to smile more. And it's especially frustrating because I had somewhat grudgingly gone through my book and, and on the advice of my editor and toned down many places that I thought could possibly elicit that sort of criticism, but apparently to no avail. So a veritable cottage industry has recently sprung up, embracing women's righteous rage. Books with titles like Good and Mad or Rage Becomes Her celebrate women's anger as a superpower whose time has come. I have sort of mixed feelings about the genre and its potential impacts. 
um, not letting up, I think persistence, which is the note that was just sounded here a moment ago, um, is not the same thing as anger. And it's one thing to validate justifiable anger, but another to confuse painstaking critique with a hostile or petulant outburst and thereby denigrate it. When the aforementioned book was under review by a press that looked likely to publish it, I received one day an odd email from the editor who had just pitched my book to the editorial board. This is a senior editor, a religion editor, with years of successful publishing under her belt. She explained that during the discussion of my project, the editorial director, a man with expertise in neurobiology, had raised some concerns. Because my book contains a sustained critique of two elder statesmen of biology, E.O. Wilson and Richard Dawkins, who have been criticized many, many times by many, many other people, uh, the editorial director nevertheless felt that the book would, quote, reflect poorly on the press's science list. Because my book was deemed anti-science, that was apparently the term that he used, I was informed that if the press were going to proceed any further, I would need to secure, quote, endorsements of my work from scientists. I objected to my editor that this demand was akin to asking a humanities scholar to verify the, the conclusions of a scientific text. I pointed out that positioning scientists as the arbiters of the value of a humanities project was in fact a case in point of precisely the kind of practices that my book critiques. She agreed with me, but she explained that as a humanities editor at a university press with a strong science reputation, there was nothing she could do. My story has a happy ending. When I saw where this was going, I contacted another press and I told the editor there the whole story. I wasn't sure if I should do that or not, but I did. And thankfully, they were more open-minded. So is this a story about gender? I have often asked myself that question. There are many dynamics involved, but the gendered nature of scientific authority is surely one of them. I don't know whether a more junior scholar uh, someone just starting out in her career would have secured that happy outcome. I wonder whether, whether such a scholar would even have felt comfortable challenging this sort of practice or relaying her frank concerns to another potential publisher. I don't know whether I would have 20 years ago. So peer review practices and especially blind peer review are designed to correct for biases like these mm -hmm. and many other kinds, but we all know how imperfect that process can be. And even the most functional peer review process cannot address the fact that editorial boards of presses may replicate the same gender dynamics and disciplinary hierarchies that exist in the university at large. Nor can it prevent male reviewers from resorting to the sort of lazy hand grenade of tone policing. What we need, obviously, is more women in high-profile publishing roles, like the women here, um, and more frank conversations like this. So I, I won't repeat some of the excellent advice that you've heard already. Um, I, I would also second all the things that, that you said about um, finding writing time, about taking care of yourself, putting yourself first at least once in a while. Um, but in addition to that, I guess my advice to other women scholars, if that's sort of what I'm here to be offering, um, is to, to find a handful of people, both men and women, whose judgment you trust uh, when you need a reality check about whether the obstacles you're experiencing are unusual or unfair. Um, it's important to have people in your life who can tell you when you're right, but also when you're wrong. I think um, having people who always back you up can actually um, create more of a feeling of resentment sometimes, because it's not always about gender. You know, Sometimes it is. So it's important, uh, and I've had lots of, of good advice from both men and women as far as 
um, these kinds of dilemmas when I didn't really know what to do next. Um, in my own career, I wasn't mentored by women, like at all, really. Like there really weren't <laughs> any women um, when I was a young scholar who, who gave me advice. So, um, but since I was asked to speak on this subject, uh, let me just hereby offer my own mentoring services to any of you <laughs> who might want them at any point. So lsideras at indiana.edu. Um, if I can help you, let me know. Thanks. Thank you, Lisa. And I want to share another anecdote. Um, since you brought up tone policing, I'll uh, share that not too long ago, we received a submission to the JAR, uh, a piece uh, largely engaging Lisa's work uh, in consecrating science um, and challenging her thesis there. Uh, and but but spent a lot of time uh, tending also to Lisa's tone in the book. And um, you might be glad to hear that I decided not to send this mission out for review. And I wrote back to that author and said, I think the tone of this paper is not appropriate for the jar. And we won't be spent sending it out for review. So you know, there are some editors out there who are asking these questions about uh, you know, what we do and do not publish. Uh, and we, we need to think more about this. And I do see it more. Uh, in terms of the way people engage uh, women as authors yeah. um, than the way they engage men as authors. And of course, being an editor, I see it sometimes in the way authors and reviewers engage with me um, as an editor. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, finally, we are going to hear from Catherine Wessinger, who is the Reverend H. James Yamauchi S.J. Professor of the History of Religions at Loyola University, New Orleans. She served as co-general editor of Nova Religio, the Journal of Alternative and Emergent Religions, published by University of California Press since 2000. She's the editor of the Women in Religion series at New York University Press and co-editor of the Women in the World's Religions and Spirituality Project, which is part of the online World Religions and Spirituality Project based at Virginia Commonwealth University. So thank you, Catherine, for being here. Okay. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. And I've really resonated with the stories and also the advice uh, given here today. Um, just briefly, when I went to graduate school in the 1970s, I was told that um, if I focused on women's studies, I would be unemployable. So um, I took that advice, but I did write my dissertation on a woman but it, had, it contained no feminist analysis. So, uh, so I moved into women's studies uh, afterwards, uh, after I finished my um, dissertation, started teaching. Also, I really resonate with uh, being a mother and taking care of your young child while you're trying to write. I wrote my dissertation while, while my, my son was a baby. So you start out writing uh, when the baby's asleep, then when he's awake most of the time, you uh, find way, I found a place to put him for part of the day for a few hours uh, uh, so I could have a, you know, a few hours to write. And of course, I'm familiar with not having a social life because you're either focusing on teaching, research, and writing or you're focusing on the child. So I know how challenging that is. 
Also, uh, I mean, my son's 38 now, so I've had an empty nest for a long time. But, uh, and so then, in my case, I just fill up the empty nest with more work, right? <laughs> so, but I've, I've enjoyed that. Um, um, being invited to um, be on this panel raised the question for me about uh, how many papers written by women or authored by women have been submitted to Nova Religio, the journal that I co-edit. Because there, when there's an issue and all the authors are, are men, I notice that. I mean, we don't, when, we're, when we send papers out for peer review, we're not you know, judging them on, on who the authors are. We're judging uh, the content of the papers. But sometimes uh, it works out that an issue will have only male authors. But then other issues will have predominantly women authors. So I wanted to see what the total percentage was. Just to tell you a little something about Nova Religio, the uh, co-general editors are Marie Dullum, Joe Laycott, Ben Zeller, and myself. And Rebecca Moore is uh, the reviews editor. And uh, Nova Religio presents scholarly interpretations and examinations of emergent and alternative religious movements. Nova Religio publishes articles, perspective essays, field notes, essays, and literature reviews on new religions, new movements within established religious traditions, neo-indigenous, neo-polytheistic, and revival movements, ancient wisdom and new age groups, diasporic religious movements, and marginalized and stigmatized religions. Um, the first issue of Nova Religio was published in October 1997. It grew directly out of the New Religious Movements Group here at the AAR. We had conversations there. I wrote a proposal for uh, this new journal, Nova Religio, but uh, I wasn't the first, uh, I wasn't the founding editor. Philip Lucas was the founding editor. And then I came on board as co-general editor in uh, 2000. And uh, there have been various editors throughout the years. So, uh, and right now I'm working on uh, the May 2020 issue. So, including the May 2020 issue, Nova Religio has published 80 issues during its uh, 23 years and a total of 470 articles. During that period of time, Nova Religio grew from publishing two issues per volume to three issues and since 2005, uh, four issues per volume. So it was really impossible for me to determine uh, the percentage of women submitting papers because Nova Religio goes so far back. You know, it, back in from 1997 to early 2000s, we were receiving paper submissions, hard copies. And so those have all been thrown away. Uh, since we started receiving, uh, you know, um, word files as submissions, uh, well, those are saved way back on several hard drives that are that I never access anymore. So I didn't attempt to count the number of women as compared to men who were submitting papers. But what I did is count the number of articles published by women and by men, so I could determine the percentage of women who've published in Nova Religio. So um, out of the 470 articles in the 80 issues of Nova Religio, published from 1997 to May 2020, 165 articles have been authored by women, 
and 305 <coughs> articles have been authored by men. That comes to an overall number percentage of 35% of the articles have been authored by women. Um, when my co-editors and I saw this percentage, our first reaction was that's not a very good percentage. So I wanted to dig a little further. And uh, I wrote, uh, I emailed Sarah Levine of the AAR. I wanted to find out, I wanted to get the percentage of women who are members of the AAR through the years so I could put the, our percentage of publications by women uh, in context. She provided uh, some percentages uh, to me in terms of AAR membership with the caution that AAR members are not required to give a gen gender identification. And uh, so through the years, approximately 82% of AAR's members will give a, a gender, their gender identification. So for example, in 1999, 34% uh, of AAR members who provided gender identification self-identified as women. As another example, in 2007, 37% of um, AAR's members who gave gender information, they self-identified as women. So, uh, and currently in 2019, 41% of uh, members who provided uh, gender information self-identify as women. So that helps uh, these percentages of AAR membership puts, I think, the 35% uh, published articles in Nova Religio in some context. Of course, not all authors who've published in Nova Religio are members of the AAR. We've published a number of authors who live in other countries. And one thing I've noticed is that women anthropologists who have published in Nova Religio help increase the number of, or helped increase the percentage of women women authored articles in Nova Religio. And uh, in the most recent, uh, in the three most recent volumes of Nova Religio from 2017 till through, to, to, through 2020, 47 to 50% of the articles are authored by women. And so time will tell if that trend continues and we hope that it does. So, of course, if uh, anyone here is working in the area of new religious movements in some manner, uh, I would encourage you to please consider submitting a paper to Nova Religio. Um, the website for Nova Religio is at uh, nr.ucpress.edu. When you go to the website, there's a submit tab that gives you the information about submitting. and. Um, and of course, there are brochures here up front and in the back, of course. But I want to talk about another uh, publishing possibility for uh, people who are working on some aspect of women in religions. Rebecca Moore and I are co-editors of the Women in the World's Religions and Spirituality Project. It's an online encyclopedia, which is part of a larger online encyclopedia called the World Religions and Spirituality Project. It's hosted at Virginia Commonwealth University with uh, David G. Bromley as um, general editor. And in the Women in the World Religions and Spirituality Project, we publish um, 
profiles in four areas. Uh, women founders and leaders, religious groups and movements founded and or shaped by women, saints and goddesses, and also women's roles in specific religious groups and traditions. And we also have a section on thematic essays on various topics that don't fit neatly into any of those uh, four categories. Women in the World's Religions and Spirituality Project um, has a Facebook page. If you're on Facebook and you want to find it, you have to type out the whole name. If you just type WWRSP, you're probably not going to find it. So you'll need to type out Women in the World's Religions and Spirituality Project. And when you go to the Facebook page, you'll see that we have a call for proposals there. And um, it gives you information. Um, it states that a typical profile for um, WWRSP will range from 4,000 to 7,500 words. They are peer-reviewed by myself and Rebecca Moore, also David Bromley. Um, we ask that you send a short CV, uh, your topic that you would like to write on, five, uh, a bibliography consisting of at least five sources that you plan to use. And uh, it also contains the email addresses for Rebecca Moore and myself. And I've got cards up here, of course, too, that you're welcome to pick up, and also in the back. So, um, so if you're interested, if you're working on a topic that relates specifically to women and religions, we would welcome um, profiles. To write a profile for uh, WWRSP, you have to follow a template, a specific template for the section that the profile will go into. So you need to contact us first, and we'll be happy to send you the template. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I can <clears throat> testify personally that uh, publishing with Novo Religio is an awesome experience for an author. Um, I published with Novo a few years back, and it was the editorial team there is amazing. Uh, and it's also just generally considered one of the top journals in our discipline. Um, so it is such an honor that all of these panelists agreed to be a part, thank you, agreed to be a part of this panel. Thank you so much. I feel like we got so many different perspectives uh, uh, from you as authors, as editors, as women just working in the prof profession in general. Uh, before we open it up for Q&A, I just wanted to plug one more session that we're going to have on publishing, and that is tomorrow afternoon, the um, How to Get Published panel. That's from 5.30 to 7 p.m. and it's at the Hilton Bayfront in 202B. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up that that's another how to get published um, panel that might be helpful for some of you. So now I want to just open it up for Q&A. I'd love to hear some questions. Yes, over here. Even acceptable as a way to discuss 
Um, I'd just like to say, um, as a journal editor, one of the ways that I address this uh, with both men and women working in the discipline is I bring it to the attention of my editorial assistants, who are both men and women. I bring it to the attention of members of my editorial board, my book review editor. Um, and I, I hold reviewers accountable as well. So it, you know, if, if reviewers come back with reviewer reports and they sensed, you know, I mean, they clearly they, they, they made comments about the article that give me the impression that they sensed the gender of the person uh, who authored the article. We have a double-blind review process, but sometimes the reviewer will talk about a manuscript in a way that I don't feel they would talk about it if they thought a man had written it. Um, and I'll, I'll treat that review differently, and I might even address the issue with the author when I share the review and say, look, I find these comments problematic. I hope you will ignore them. Um, they are not relevant to our assessment of your submission. Um, and uh, and I, 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 I bring these to the attention of my editorial assistants, um, who are you know, the future generation of, of our discipline. And I hope that that you know, will influence not just the way they write and eventually review things, um, but also the way they train their own students. Um, and then uh, also book reviews. This is really important when it comes to book reviews, as we heard from Lisa. And I think that it's important that we hold our book review editors and book reviewers accountable for the way they assess uh, books written by women or other gender minorities and um, as compared to books by men. Any other, anyone else want to address that? <clears throat> How do we basically like change the discipline at large? Yeah. Uh, I haven't had that problem in New Religion Studies. I think that's why I like New Religion Studies so much is because people, you have scholars that are very open-minded and it's all about the quality of the paper that's evaluated. You don't get snarky comments about tone or whether, or whether uh, that someone thinks the author is a woman or not. It just doesn't come up. Yeah, I think maybe depending on what field, area of religion you're looking at, you might see a variety of um, problems. But um, uh, I, I was looking forward to seeing what gendered, what our audience genders would be. And there's only a, one, as far as I could tell, a male. <laughs> and that's shocking. I mean, that's amazing. To me, I, I, I really was surprised. So I think we need to organize and advertise panels more boldly. Men need to come, mentors need to come. Um, maybe you could invite um, editors to come to department, uh, to give seminars. We often do on getting published, but how to focus more on the review process would be a great panel or a great discussion somehow, thinking about that. Um, sometimes it's just hard to get people to agree to review, I don't know about journals, but in book publishing, um, we actually don't have that problem too much at UNC Press, but from what I understand, there are, um, people are just so pressed, you know, for time, and which bears on, are you going to say yes or no if you need to write your own manuscript, so that balance in your own work. 
Uh, on the other hand, university press publish academic publishing depends on this ecosystem. So um, I, think, I think it's a really, really important, people need to be trained. I don't see it as much in my, again, my areas, but um, I guess it's out there. I guess the thing is I don't really have a problem with uh, women speaking to women or primarily because, you know, the gatekeeper issue is something like, do we really want to invest our time and energy in that? However, having forums like the Journal of Feminist Studies in Religion, what it does is that it generates interest in the field. It generates the potential for women writers to actually have a space in which to float their ideas, get some feedback, uh, craft a field, shape the field. And then, you know, when you acquire the stature of somebody like Kisha Ali, everybody has to put her book down on their syllabi. So then new knowledge is being produced because of the interventions that she made in the field. So I guess it's just like choosing my battles wisely in a sense that, you know, and uh, I think the publishing world, when they see that, uh, I mean, who's going to say no to Sabah Mahmoud when she has a new book out, you know? Do, do you see what I'm saying? So that's why I think that we enter the larger conversation by what we do, rather than having the larger conversation open the gates for us. Right. We open those gates ourselves. That's where I feel we need to go. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I don't need two uh, I think, you know, there's something kind of, um, there are ways in which women, we ourselves, are implicated in, in some of these dynamics that um, is, it's insidious in a way. I mean, for example, the, the request to, to serve on, you know, to, to do service when, I, when you're on sabbatical, that, that came to me from women in my department. But it's almost couched in the sense of, like, we know that we're the ones who really care. It's what, almost like it's flattering in a way. Like, you know, we need you to be on the search committee because, you know, because your perspective matters or, you know, that, that our department is one that's sort of a matriarchy. Isn't that cool, you know? So you're gonna help out with this, right? So, I mean, it, it can happen in ways that, um, that, that makes it hard to critique, you know, even, and especially when it's coming from other women. So, you know, in, in that particular case, and that's a, that's a minor thing, it's not, it's not a major complaint that I have, but it's just that, that kind of thing can happen pretty often. But I, I did actually contact my male colleague who was also on sabbatical and said, just curious, did you, were you asked to participate in this? And he said, no, I thought I would leave that to the rest of you or something. And I said, oh, well, I'm actually on sabbatical. <laughs> but uh, I'm just, I said, I just wanted a, you know, a reality check on that to find out why that's why that sort of thing is going on. So, I mean, I think it's yeah. I'll just stop there. It, it's it's complicated the ways that that women also play into these dynamics in, in ways that I think are meant well, even sometimes, but can put more of a burden on other women. That's a good point. We have a question over here in the front. How many of you here in this room have been plagiarized? Plagiarized? Do any of you have experience of your stuff being stolen, your published stuff? I have twice. And let me tell you another story. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, roughly, this is my 
time at these meetings, by the way. I've been here a long time. I've been both in the SPL and the AER. And uh, I had the experience about 20 years ago that a book I was I had written, I knew that there were publishers who had gotten the message from a reviewer, don't publish her book. So um, after at least two such experiences, maybe three, the person was here at the meetings. I went up to him and I said, I took him by the lapel more or less, and I <laughs> said, um, you have to stop obstructing me. And he said, well, how do you know it's me? I said, I know it's you. And he stepped back three paces and disappeared. I'm also in a field that's tiny, very small, almost, almost nobody's in it. But none of you addressed directly the issue of the male established scholarship just basically wanting you to go away or not write or say anything. I have experience with real aggression in that respect. So I wanted to, I would, mm. uh, would like to hear other people's experiences of this kind, if you have them. I would share that um, working in yoga studies, which is a historically male-dominated field, I I haven't um, faced that sort of uh, you know uh, any uh, I haven't faced overt aggression on the part of my male colleagues, but more of a passive aggression, where I've been on many panels or in sessions where I raised questions that were just ignored, um, and and I've had male colleagues just kind of sit back, <laughs> and just anyone else? I mean just. And it's just they, you know, just get away with it. It's just I'm just not I, I'm just not going to respond. Um, and that, uh, you know, that I've experienced that re repeatedly. It's another kind of aggression. Melissa. Yeah, I would I would say a related version of that that I wanted to ask you all about that um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about is mansplaining and white splitting. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say, as somebody that holds an endowed chair in an R1, I had this weird fantasy that it would stop when I got high enough up the ladder. I've had my research mansplained to me within the past year. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop. So I don't know if that's, I, I think that there's, there's that's a, a form of there's, aggression. There's the silencing, there's the plagiarism, and then there's the, I understand your research topic better than you do, even though <coughs> no one else has written a book in English on this topic, including that person, right? Um, I think that's all kind of a larger set, right? The only thing I, I might, Initial response is just don't let them get away with it. I mean, it w and of course they might label you as being, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, emotional, angry, psycho, whatever. I think number one, don't let them get away with it, but be professional. Try to even be kind, and also have other people um, amplify your point of view. Um, because there has been, change has come to some degree. Uh, I think field-to-field, I think field, it's, it's, it seems to be a lot different field-to-field. But I also appreci I appreciate what Zane was saying. You know, In some ways, you have to let your work speak for itself or our work together speak for itself. Um, but these kinds of aggressions are, how do you respond? It seems like we need a plan. So that you're ready when it happens. I think that's good you need role playing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I really so often we're taken aback and we let these things pass. And you, you have to say, have something to say, again, in a professional way. But 
overaggression, yeah. microaggressions yeah. are very traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> and in the moment, it's very difficult to know yeah. how to respond. Yeah. Um, and so thinking ahead of time, and also having a support group or a yeah. therapist, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, because these things can do lasting damage um, as they build up over time. Um, yes, over here. I think that's a good idea. I had a good experience publishing uh, in the conversation, uh, yes, and of course, religion dispatches, and yeah. and uh, and I always read articles or essays written by my colleagues who publish there. So I think it's a great idea. Yeah, we also have Lisa Sedaris here, who's editor at, uh, on the editorial board at Feminist Brain, uh, which mm -hmm. often times features. Yeah, and I, I don't know how many of you have seen the Eminent Frame is now putting out calls for submissions of things. So it, it has been by invitation, you know, primarily in the past. So, um, sorry? Oh, the Eminent Frame. Yeah. Um, it strikes me as being very open to. Yeah. Well, a lot of things, but yeah. but gender diversity in particular. I think it's mm. you know, and in terms of. of uh, the editorial direction that it's going yeah, in an editorial yeah. board. So yeah, that's one I would I would definitely keep in mind. Yeah, and also in terms of communications, I think it's important for scholars to try to translate specialized work for a broader audience. And I think it's really important. We try to do books that do that, but any um, site that can do that, create a new channel for a broader audience is really valuable. So we have time for one more question. But I'm on that account for you, too. Uh, thank you all That's very much. I am um, on the entering end of my uh, academic career as a new faculty, so it's been in this about three months now. Wow. And so I'm in the world of, okay, my dissertation is done. <laughs> I need to turn this thing into 
most of what I hear about um, publishing, um, just the advice I've gotten um, just through doctoral training is, um, you know, how to prepare your, whether it's your book proposal, whatever it is. Um, but what I am unclear about is what am I looking for once I actually get to meet an editor, right? It's not, please do, please take this, and anybody, right? Like, you know, I mean, I hope that's not what I'm doing, right? Like begging at someone's feet, right? So what is it, like, how do you know you have a good fit? How do you know you're at the right place? Um, when do you decide, you know what, this, maybe this isn't the best place for this, for my process? So what should you look for on the other end? Should I take a small stab at that? Mm -hmm. um, I think that one thing you want to ask is a timeline, when they can get back to you for, you know, whether the work is something that they'd be interested in carrying. Another thing you want to look at is whether the press is also f publishing other works in that field, so that they're kind of known as, you know, that's a to-go place if you're interested in migration studies and gender, say, for example. Um, a third thing you want to find out is, you know, how robust their um, uh, advertising arm is. Like, are they going to do the work to get this book out to, you know, the constituencies that would be interested? Um, a fourth thing is pricing, because if your book is going to be priced out of the textbook market completely, I mean, you can't ask students to buy $50 textbooks anymore, whether an e-version will be possible, what the world rights are, or the whether the rights uh, copyright, it's like is it just North America distribution, that kind of thing. And uh, um, another thing is that you want to sort of like see, figure out what the royalty arrangement is, agreement is. So those are some things that come to mind right away that you want to ask about. And also then how the working with the editor process works. Uh, you folks probably can say a lot more, but those are things that come to mind. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of like from your editorial perspective? Yeah, I think, I think if you have, you know, some projects are competed for among presses. Some are so obviously great for one particular press. You know, um, there's, a, there's just such a range. So you want to know what they're going to do for you, but you also um, have to be realistic about um, how, how choosy you can be, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. That's right. I think also you shouldn't hesitate to ask for yeah. advice. So one yeah. of the things you might consider yeah. doing is identifying four or five books that are in conversation with your project and emailing those authors and saying, what was your publishing experience mm. like? Who did you work with and where? And mm. was it a good experience and why? Uh, and hopefully those authors will take the time to write back or meet with you at the AAR and give you a sense of their experience. And I think that can make a big difference. And, and look and see who's engaged uh, in your world, you know, your intellectual world. And because and, then they're more likely to really get your book and, and promote it pr correctly. But presses are often opening up new areas too so don't yeah. overlook don't don't be driven by stereotypes actually mm -hmm. go to their website see what they're doing they start new series there's new editors you know there's there's a lot of change so there should be some good options i think okay well it is uh time to stop but thank you so much to our panelists and thank you to you all